Hello and welcome to uh, Critical Line Item. My name is Tom Rablick. Thank you for joining me for this particular podcast. Australian politicians are currently looking at the issue of radicalisation and extremism in a parliamentary uh, committee inquiry that is exploring what Australia ought to do in the circumstance of uh, you know, cracking down or, or minimising the growth of extremist movements in Australia. Uh, it's exploring how things grow, what people do, what measures might help um, you know, develop greater social cohesion and perhaps discourage people from going down an extremist path. We can learn lessons from various parts of the world on this. And one place that has uh, people who were involved in extremism, and we saw it on January 6th, is the United States. Joining me today is someone who has had a history in an extremist movement, but is also today uh, heavily involved in de-radicalisation and trying to get people to disengage from particular ideologies, extremism, uh, in order to uh, ensure that they don't go down the path he went down for a significant amount of time. Jeff Shoopley, the former leader of the National Socialist Movement in the US, these days he works with an a, uh, organisation called Beyond Barriers, which tries to uh, bring people together and get a reconciliatory sort of environment kicking around. I'll let him tell this story because it's quite compelling. Jeff, thank you for joining me. Hey, thanks for having me on the program, Tom. It's, uh... it's an absolute pleasure. One of the things that's significant whenever we talk about um, extremism, extremist movements, is understanding you know, where uh, the seed was planted in uh, someone's mind to go down a particular path. Um, what it, you spent more than two decades in that space. Where did it begin, Jeff? Where, where, where did you grow up first, and, and how did this evolve? <clears throat> so I grew up in uh, rural Minnesota in the United States. Um, for for those that don't know, Minnesota is one of the northern uh, most states in the country, um, in the lower forty eight, anyways, and. Um, so I grew up in a rural area there. I came from a very uh, normal family, working class, middle, maybe middle class uh, family. Um, my trajectory into extremism and to white nationalism specifically, um, everyone's story is a little bit different. But for me, uh, my mother and my grandparents had come over as uh, immigrants from Germany. My grandfather fought in the Third Reich and in Hitler's army. My great uncles also fought um, in the Third Reich as well. So even though it wasn't something that was that my family was like agreed with or anything, actually they're against it. Um, that's where the fascination began. It would began with you know wanting to hear things from my grandfather about his experience in the war um, and just a fascination with history. Unfortunately, my fascination with history at that young age, uh, put, you know, got me down that rabbit hole. And, um, and so I, I sought out an organization to join. I wanted to join the, an organization that would be closest to the German movement. So I found the National Socialist Movement um, in the United States and, and joined that. And within two years, um, I was appointed as the national director of that organization. And um, 
led it for 25 years. It was the largest Nazi party or largest organization of its kind in the country by the time I left. Um, so there's there's so much in between there um, they, they could be that could be explained as well. But uh, that's that was the that was the fascination with history for me. For other people, it's a sense of belonging. For some, it's uh, you know, there's all kinds of different reasons, but it's uh, it's a very cult-like uh, mentality getting involved in these type of things. I, I want to say for, uh, on my own, as far as my own story, when people join these organizations, a lot of a lot of people that come out and they talk about it, they say, you know, I was filled full of hate. It was all about hate and, and this sort of thing. And I, I want to preface that by saying I, I didn't hate anybody when I joined the movement. It wasn't about hate. That wasn't the motivating factor. I want to explain that a little uh, more concisely, though. Hate is fostered in these movements. It's definitely part of it. It's fostered there. But no one, almost no one joins these movements because they hate people. They join it thinking that they're doing something good. They think they're doing something noble. At least that was my case. And in the case of leading for all those years, and many of the people I'd met over the years, that was the case too. They were motivated by noble or pure intentions, like good intentions. Obviously it was not a good cause and it was not something that, uh, it's not noble and it's not honorable, but they believe it to be. Just like when you're in a cult, you don't wanna hear anything that's outside of that cult bubble or that echo chamber. Um, so getting involved in something like this, I thought I'm gonna save my country, I'm gonna save my people, um, I'm doing something good. What I didn't realize is, how that ideology, how that type of thinking damages other people. You don't see, you don't see them. You don't see the humanity of other people that you're damaging when you're doing it. It's not until you really get out or until you start disengaging or de-radicalizing that you, you start seeing those things. You start seeing the humanity of other people. Over 25 years, you would have seen a, a, a lot of things go on. What, I mean, as somebody who hasn't been a part of that kind of space, the, the thing that, the question that keeps arising in my mind is, what do these groups do? You know, how do they operate? Um, as far as like what specifically will be like, what, what, okay, well, I can, um, basically, I mean, they're all different. They all have different, um, there's different things that different groups are engaged in, but the organization that I was a part of specifically did things like marches and route public rallies, passed out literature, developed video games, had a music record label that produced hate rock or RAC rock against communism. Um, or white nationalist music, whatever you want to call it, oi, there's different terms for it, but, um, and there's different genres of the music, but so the organization I was a part of was running podcasts, was doing videos, it had its own media department that was developing videos that people could watch online, or they could order the DVDs, um, I think I said video games, we developed a couple video games uh, that were like first-person shooters that were based on what the movement was all about. And when I talk about the music and, and the merchandising and the marketing and all that, it was all uh, to market uh, this ideology. So it was this organization that I was a part of, the National Socialist Movement was engaged in all sorts of, all sorts of things like that. Everything from the, the modern way of getting out uh, materials all the way down to like just passing out flyers and newsletters and things like that. Okay. 
how did it, in over 25 years, what sort of growth did you experience? Did, did it, I mean, how many members did you have at, at the peak of your involvement? It's really tough to say what the, you know, a lot of, a lot of the groups that monitored the far right would, would speculate and they'd say, well, the NSM has several hundred members and then that they're the biggest. Um, we didn't really have a, a handle on that. Anything with numbers, I just didn't have a handle on how many were there. There was people joining literally every week, but it was a revolving door. So there was people coming and going and then your people that were, the people that were out on the streets, the activists were only a small percentage of the organization. Um, most of the organization people were just, you know, joining by mail and, and getting on the email lists and things like that uh, for information. Most of the people that joined were not your, your street activist uh, types, but you, those were the ones that were seen in the public anyways. Okay. That's interesting. But uh, so measuring, yeah, but you're never quite sure how to measure that because you, in terms of involvement or sentiment, um, given the nature of the beliefs that are embedded in say, the national socialism, um, there are those who might believe something and not disclose it. So you're never quite sure how many how many people hold those views. It would be the same with uh, you know, communism. It would be the same with sort of, uh, uh, I guess, any kind of, um, uh, you know, anti-government, anti-authoritarian ideology. Where did... It, it, and I would say just to just to finish that on as well, um, over the years, I mean, we're talking thousands of people, not hundreds, maybe hundreds at any given time. But over the years, thousands joined because there was a steady stream um, of people coming constantly in. It doesn't mean those were all active at the same time. But um, as you said, you know, you don't always know who's who's there. There might be somebody that joined in 1997 and you never heard from the organization never heard from them again but they were still walking around saying that they were a member because they joined back then we'd run into people like that all the time yeah the and it's just that kind of thing will happen by uh, by i guess attrition anyway it's the question that comes to mind jeff while you're in the middle of all of this, what are the things that, you know, and running the joint, basically, um, what are you thinking? What was I thinking at the time when I was in? Yeah, when well, you're running, you're running the joint, you're building this thing up. You know, it, does the does the ideology kind of take hold, and you go into autopilot, or? Oh, yes. I mean, you, you, you don't realize it when you're there, but you lose all sense of your, your personal identity. You, you might hear different things from different people after you got out, like, well, why, why were you like this? Or why were you like that? It, it is all consuming, depending how deep you are in this stuff and how, how involved you are. And this is when I was in it. I mean, this is just an example that I use quite often, but um I was dating a lot of different girls that were not part of the group. They were outside of the group. And a lot of times they say, well, I want to see what you do, even though I don't agree with it. You know, can I come along and see what you do? I say, yeah, sure. Come along. One after the other, 
literally one girlfriend after another kept saying to me, Jeff, this is a cult. This is like a cult. You are like a cult leader. And it would make me so angry at the time because I was like, no, it's not. It's not like that. I don't know why you think that. And I thought there was something wrong with all these different girls that I was dating. There was nothing wrong with them. There was something wrong with me. I couldn't see it. And that's very common. And it's very typical for people that are involved in these movements because you have shut your mind off, basically. And that's the concept of Beyond Barriers. And we'll get to that a little bit later in the, in the yep. conversation. But the work I do now with Beyond Barriers, the whole concept of Beyond Barriers was you've erected these barriers in your mind and you can't see beyond them. You can't get beyond them. You're trapped. You're in this echo chamber or this bubble and you can't see beyond it. And that and it is very cult-like. And um, it really bothered me at the time when people would say it because I couldn't see it. I thought they were wrong. Um, but it, it very much is like a cult. So that's why it's hard to reach the, the people that are in there. And that's why, and we can talk about that too, but that's why we have a certain process that where we try to, how we try to reach them is very unique. It's not, uh, it's not the way that I, I don't think most de-radicalization groups uh, approach it. It's very unique. Right. You're at the apex of a movement. You're running the shop, basically. You, you, uh... You're the national director. Um, you've devoted a large slice of your life to the thing. Um, you see, I'm 49. I can't, yeah, I'm about to turn, not, not too far from turning 50, right? Um, people tell me it's downhill from there, but that's cool. But the, I can't imagine 20, spending half my life in something like that. The road in was history and fascination in history and then looking for something that resembled what you were reading or what you were wanting to learn from family. What was the road out? Well, <clears throat> for everyone, it's different. Um, for me specifically, the road out, um, there was a lot of attempts by my family over the years to try to reach me. Um, my grandfather, who had just passed a, a few years ago, he even said to me at one point, he says, Jeff, the road that you're on, and this is the one that fought in the Third Reich, and he says, the road you're on is going to lead to one of two places. It's gonna, they're going to lock you up in prison or you're going to be dead. They're going to kill you you know, I don't know who they is, you know, whoever is opposing the movement, but um, he says, that's, that's where it leads. And I responded to him very uh, nasty, very nasty at the time. And I, and I um, said something I shouldn't have, but then it was, you know, was never brought up again by him, but my parents had tried for years to steer me clear of everything. And I just wasn't ready to hear it. And I wasn't ready to, to listen. <clears throat> I was totally devoted 100% to this. And, and you have people that, that they're losing their family members. I know people that have died that have went to, you know, countless people that have died, went to prison for many, many, many years. Um, it's, it's just a, it's a rough life. It's not something I would wish on anyone. It's not, you know, it's, it's why we do the work we do now is to try to help people change their lives and, and uh, find a better way, a better path is very uh, destructive. But um, so all through those years being involved and seeing people die, seeing people go to prison and you just, you kept thinking of excuses. And I say, you, I'm talking about myself in third person. I kept making excuses, but 
other people, it's the same, the same psychology applies. You, you keep rationalizing things or you keep going, well, uh, this just happened because the movement's right. So everything you believe, you know, it goes back to that. So finding a way out and finding that to be able to see beyond those barriers or past them is the difficult part. And for me, um, meeting some people that were um, on the other side that or not necessarily the other side but people that i met in my during my time in the movement is what uh, helped change my life and i can explain that or go ahead i'm sorry tom see there's something you've you've picked up on because we've got extremists in australia who keep talking about the system is set up against us the system does this the system will imprison us the system will do this but we need to follow this true because, you know, the cause is noble. Um, we've got a group down here uh, that uh, has got members within it who talk about white genocide and all that sort of stuff. Um, and the, yeah, the system is always to blame. Was that something that you heard a lot from members of the NSM or you, you, focused on yourself? Yes. And in fact, you know, um, very much so because it's an, it's a, basically it's an us against the world mentality that you have. So every, you know, I've explained it in, in the past, like every day you wake up and you're literally at war. I mean, we saw ourselves as soldiers, you know, so it was the, anyone outside of the movement was civilians. So I'm part of civilian life. Now I'm learning how to be a civilian because for my whole, almost my entire adult life, I was involved in this stuff until um, early 2019 when I when I left and started uh, speaking out. But um, you you really do get caught up in in it where um, when things happen to you, a lot of times you find those justifications. Like um, on the other side of the extreme, a lot of the the far left will say that you know to get people out of the far right, you should dox them, you should put out their information, you should do things like that. Every single time something like that happened to me, I doubled down on my activism. Anybody pushed me or anybody, um, you know, if I got attacked, physically attacked or anything like that, I would say, all right, you, 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 uh, you feel like you need to attack me. That action or that, that action against me got me to double down. I would do twice as much. If the FBI showed up and knocked on my door investigating something with the group or anything like that, it made me angry. So then I would do twice as much. I said, well, if the FBI is uh, uh, coming and knocking on my door and bothering me and bothering my family, guess what? Now I'm going to do, you know, triple the amount of things I was doing before because uh, that's just, that, that was the that was the way uh, I looked at it. So when you have people, I can think of like, two people two people out of hundreds of people i know that are out that left because they were doxxed and these were not like long-term guys or anything like that so or and i don't know of not one that left from getting punched in the face usually that further radicalizes a person so these are the approaches not to take is what i'm saying uh with people because it doesn't work not it doesn't typically work. I mean, especially with an idealist, if you have somebody that really is, is a real idealist and they believe in what they're fighting for, you're not going to scare them out. You're just going to, you're going to further radicalize them, get them more angry. By yeah. doing that. Um, and uh, in some of the things that I've been writing, I've been sort of you observing the way these 
let's call them maybe niche supremacist type sites on Telegram and other places grow. The speed at which some of them grow um, can be concerning, depending on what is happening at any point in time. Yeah, for sure. Now, you mentioned the FBI earlier. Before we get on to you know, further exploring your road out, how often did the FBI show up on your on your doorstep? Uh, it ha- I mean, I'd been raided a number of a couple of times over the years, um, and I had gotten visits, um, not a lot, uh, but some years back, a number of times. Typically, if something really terrible was going down or they were investigating somebody they thought might be tied to the group, they would come and, and knock on the door and ask, do you know uh, this person or that person or, or things like that? And, and typically, I really didn't talk to them or have anything to say. Now, as far as being raided, that's a different story. You really can't say no. Uh, they just kicked the doors in. So, um, you know, yeah. but so, yeah, I've had some interactions in, in the past with, with authorities for sure. You've said earlier in the conversation that the things that make people move from point A to point B can be different and can be interpersonal. What was the what was the moment that switched on the light bulb in your head that said it's time to move away? For me, the process was kind of backwards. Like what what we encourage people to do is to disengage first. Disengage from the organization that they're a part of or from the ideology, and then you can work on de-radicalization. And my trajectory was backwards because I didn't, first of all, I didn't realize that I was de-radicalizing, but I was de-radicalizing while I was still in the organization. So about three, about 2016, there was other little things. There's, there's a few things. It wasn't one thing. It wasn't like one day I woke up, flipped the light switch and went up. I'm out. I'm not doing this anymore. It, it, it doesn't really work like that for most people. For some people, it's a it's one big experience. But for most people, it's a it's a lot of smaller experiences. And for me, part of it was, uh, you know, I feel like moving to Detroit, Detroit is a city where white people are the minority here. So I hadn't been in a, in a place like that where I was dealing with people of all different races. So I feel like being here and having experiences with people of all different races and backgrounds did help me in some ways, but that wasn't, that wasn't enough. That wasn't, the, that was a part of it. That was a little like seed being planted. And there was a few yeah. other incidences, but there was a couple of people that I could, that I talk about um, that are public figures. There's people that aren't public figures. So I can't say their names and, and they don't want to be in the, in the media and all that. But a couple of public figures that really helped me a lot as far as getting out were meeting two different filmmakers. Um, one, Daryl Davis, who's a, a black musician who works with us at Beyond Barriers. He played with Little Richard, Chuck Berry. He's a famous musician. Um, and his hobby, or they call it his hobby, where he goes and meets with people in the Ku Klux Klan and brings them out. He's brought over 200 Klansmen out of the clan uh, alone and um, so Daryl's a really incredible individual and, and very unique and uh, we're completely uh, honored uh, 
to have him on the team and even to know him. So I met Daryl Davis when he was filming his movie in 2016 called Accidental Courtesy. And we're sitting across from each other. And in my mind, you know, I'm the commander of the NSM at the time. So in my mind, I'm going to sit down with this guy and I'm going to spew propaganda and get it out onto, you know, whatever program he's filming. And that was my plan. Um, but uh, what I didn't plan for was meeting somebody that would become a lifelong friend. Um, and how he got to me was he was able to tap into my humanity, which is something that other people weren't able to do. I'd been in countless documentaries over the years. I'd met countless filmmakers. This was nothing new. Um, but when he and I were sitting across from each other and we were just talking like friends and, and uh, I was in the music industry before. So we were talking about music and uh, uh, it, we just got along real well. And when he told me about why he does this, why, what started him on this journey, how as a boy scout or a cub scout at like eight years old he was in a parade with the boy scouts and he was the only black child that was there and there was people throwing pelting him with rocks as a child in this parade and i'm sitting across from him and i'm thinking i'm in the movement and i'm doing this for my family for my people this is a good thing i'm thinking and here's this human being this man sitting across from me telling me about how the ideology damaged him as a child and it, it bothered me like I didn't let on that it bothered me but it stuck it stuck in my mind that you know this is one person that I met if that ideology affected him that way how many others could it have affected that way too how many people has it damaged is the ideology where then you start questioning is the ideology bad in that sense where it causes people not everybody obviously that's in the ideology is going to be harming kids but if that ideology can drive someone to harm kids or to harm others then maybe there's something wrong with the ideology so that was the first like really big seed i feel like that was planted and within six months or a year of that by 2017, I met a Muslim filmmaker from England, which is originally uh, Pakistani, I believe, um, Dia Khan. Uh, and I was in her film, White Right Meeting the Enemy. Daryl, I had met like one day with Dia, since I was one of the main characters in her film, uh, which went on to win all kinds of Emmys and it was really a powerful film. I spent a lot of time with her. So we became friends like the ongoing joke between her and I was that she's my bratty little sister because she was always so adamant about filming I said you are exhausting woman you are just exhausting <laughs> you know so we just uh you know had this like joking with each other off and on and and we became friends and she got to me she really got to me where we're sitting across from each other and and she was talking about how hate and how racism damaged her as a child and how it made her feel like less than a person and ugly and not wanted and these sort of things and she, this is an incredible human being I mean she is an incredible person and hearing that not just hearing it but I could see it I could see it in her face I could feel her pain in the room when she was saying these things I could 
feel it. And that hit me like getting kicked in the, in the chest by a horse. That was the beginning of the, the end for me. Like I should have walked out right, right then and there, but I didn't have the courage at the time to, to do it, to, to give up everything that I had, you know, spent my whole life doing. But um, she got to me in a really, that was the end. That was, there was, I, I, I was going to be leaving. It was just, it just took me a little while after that. So you exited in 2019? Yep. Right. Two years ago, basically. Yep. Okay. Um, and it's clear from what you've said up to this point, exiting was the right thing to do and moving on was the right thing to do. Um and whenever I listen to people that talk about moving away from movements that are sometimes violent, um, you know, I've listened to people like Michael Franzese talk about, you know, moving from a life in the organised crime into doing what he does now. Not an easy move. What was that shift for you, Jeff? like when you moved from um, being that involved in the NSM to uh, in, into what you called earlier civilian type of society? Oh, that was, it was difficult. And I don't say that it was difficult because it was something that I didn't want to do. I, I had to do it. I felt compelled to do it because once you realize what got me into the movement was I thought I was doing a good thing. I was going to be fighting for my people, as I said earlier, and it was, I thought I was doing something good. Now, when I realized how damaging it really is to others and, and I'm starting to break down the ideology in my head and it's not, things aren't connecting. Um, things that Dia pointed out about how the movement is fear-based, how everything is about fear, that people that are, that are in it are afraid, which I would never admit when I was there because I couldn't see it. But when you break it down, it's very much fear-based. They're afraid that they're going to be, there's going to be white genocide. They're afraid they're going to be replaced or killed off or, or that sort of thing. So that was what really motivates a lot of people to stay is that it's a fe it's fear. They won't call it fear, but it is fear. It's, it's fear of the unknown. And, and a lot of times it's not knowing these other cultures and uh, having experiences with them there's people we're working with right now at Beyond Barriers that are older than I am that believe they've never even met a Jewish person, you know, or maybe they have, but they didn't know it, you know, or they just haven't really had much experiences with other races at all. And you say, how is that even possible in the United States? But it is. Um, and, and so, you know, we're working with all kinds of different people on, on, uh, on these different things. And it's, uh, really getting to the getting down to the humanity of the issue and i think i missed one of your questions i'm sorry when we move from when you move from point a to point b um you yes you said it's difficult uh you said it's the right thing to do but sometimes people that you leave don't like it 
right? Oh, what yeah. is the what is the what was the uh, consequence in terms of you leaving from that side of the fence? Okay. Yes. And um, so basically, when I left, which was in the first week of March of 2019. I knew at that time that I was going to speak out against the movement, but I wasn't ready to do it yet. I mean, I needed to process things. I needed to figure things out. And what I did in 2000, uh, March of 2019 was I retired. So you could retire from the movement. Uh, you have to understand the National Socialist Movement was not a democracy. I was the commander of the organization. The next in line, um, if something, if I left or, or whatever, was the chief of staff. So I had some corporate responsibilities that had to be taken care of and different things like that with the organization. So I passed on the organization. I said I was retiring. And then I went through what I call, and I don't know if it's actually a word, but I call it my decompression period because I felt like those first months of leaving the movement your brain is decompressing. You feel like it's just, you, you're, you have all these emotions. Cause now I went from a high stress environment of running this organization um, that was all over the country and in different countries to now not, you know, what are you gonna do with your life? So the few people that I was still talking to at the time, cause mostly I was just shut off from the world, like not answering the phones, not talking to people just processing it, taking that time for myself to figure out why did I do this? You beat yourself up over it. Why, why did I stay so long? All of that. And some of the fears or concerns at that point were, man, I spent my whole adult life doing this. Will society ever accept me back? Will I be can I be accepted back? Will I be ha ever have a normal life, you know, or, or those sort of things. And um, a couple of people that I was still talking to, I of course didn't voice those concerns, but those were concerns in my own head. Uh, I told uh, Dia was one of the only, Dia Khan was one of the only people I was talking to during that time when I was making the decision to leave her, my father, and maybe a couple of uh, girlfriends. And that was it. You would count them on one hand. Um, most everybody else didn't know what, what I was going through emotionally or mentally or anything psychologically or anything like that. Um, but in, in my mind, I was like, one of the reasons I didn't leave the movement sooner is I had felt like there's a saying here, and I don't know if they have it in Australia, but it's a saying like, that's your bed. Now you have to lie in it. You know, you made the bed for yourself. You have to, you, that's it. That's who you are. So one of the individuals I was still speaking with had told me, he was like, well, what are you going to do now? Because you know, the Jews are going to hunt you down to the ends of the earth because of who you've been for all those years. They will never let you go back into society. They will hunt you down and you leave the movement. You're considered a traitor. So, you know, why are you doing this? And they, they just didn't, they couldn't wrap their head around it. Like, why are you going to do this? They are going to hunt you down anyways. And those are the concerns of, you know, people that are leaving is that they may not be accepted back into society, that they may not have a chance at a regular life um, or things like that. But for me, I wasn't going to tell them, hey, I'm going to be speaking out anyways. I feel like I needed to speak out. I needed to do my part to help others and not be involved in this and not because 
um, you know, necessarily to save their lives. But when you see what happened in like Christchurch with the mass shootings, and we had them here in Pittsburgh and in the United States as well, um, these mass shootings and, and things like that, I, if I off ramp, get somebody out that could be the next person that's doing that, then this experience was was worth it. If because if you're saving, it's not saving that one life, but it's saving the life of those innocent people that hate has, um, you know, has in fear and all these things have caused them to do that. So um, I see what I'm doing now is a noble cause, actually a noble cause, not like before. Now it's really making a difference, and it's for for everybody. It's for our society in general. When you you, you, you've now got Beyond Barriers. What does Beyond Barriers do? Beyond Barriers works in peace building, so, um, and counter extremism prevent. Um, we are trying to educate the public. We do a number of different things. So we're trying to educate the public so we don't have people that are entering in these extremist groups. So we work with different communities and um, some of the communities that we cause damage to as extremists that we damaged in the past. Like now I, I work with the, the Jewish community actually quite closely. And um, <clears throat> the irony of that is, is uh, it, it's still, it is still just incredible to me. Um, and uh, I'm honored to do it. But um, so we work with different communities. We're also trying to, we put out counter messaging videos and things like that and um, podcasts basically to try to reach people that are still in. And the, the reason at first in, so when I was talking about the decompression period, that was from like March until August, September. Then I started speaking out in summer, fall of 2019. And um, I had put up uh, a website, jeffscoop.com, my personal site, and all these people were reaching out for advice and questions and, and all this kind of stuff about leaving. And I was helping as many as I could. And it got to the point where I couldn't do it by myself. I couldn't keep up with it. And there's other de-radicalization groups that do this work. But a lot of the people were telling me they won't talk to them. They don't trust them. They don't like them because some of the members were, um, aligned with far left extremists now extremism now and they didn't like that and didn't trust that so for mm. us at beyond barriers it was super important to be nonpartisan, non-political and work for, towards helping everybody so i couldn't keep up with it so i needed to assemble a team and that's what we did we've got a parliamentary inquiry down here uh, you've got more than two decades of experience of being involved in an extremist movement and now dealing with you know, de-radicalization initiatives and, and I guess um, uh, uh, working on uh, building an environment that encourages and fosters greater social cohesion, right? Yep. Um, what are the things politicians need to keep in mind when they're looking at um, solutions to social uh, things that create problems in society, like extremist movements? What are the things they need to think about? 
Well, a lot of times, like with the approach, <clears throat> approaching people that are involved in these things, if you understand that it is like a cult in many ways, that they are very, um, you know, approaching them and telling them, hey, you're wrong. Hey, you and I, we know they're wrong, right? Obviously, they're wrong. But when you approach them that way and you tell them that they're wrong, their minds shut off. They're not open to, to hear. They're not open to listen. Um, one thing, and, we, and we've, we fight all kinds of different extremism, right, left, religious, and, and that. But one thing, my expertise lies from the far right because of my experience there. And one thing about the far right is respect is very important. You know, like in the mafia, you always hear, or the mob, you always hear like, well, respect is everything. The far right is that is like that too. And I'm not making the comparison to the mob, but um, the respect issue is really important. So if you sit down and you're talking with somebody that's, that's involved, that's radicalized, and you listen to the garbage that they're spewing out of their mouth, and you're respectful about it, you listen. Now they have to reciprocate they have to listen to you. So what one of the tactics or one of the uh, methods I should say that we use at Beyond Barriers is storying and listening and, and hearing what, and giving people alter, alternative ways of looking at things. So if they say, well, hey, um, I feel like the Jews are going to genocide our people. They're gonna wipe us all out. You will give them another way of looking at that and say, so, Well, really, how is that possible? Like, and this is what this is why I think this. Don't tell them you're wrong, you know, we know they're wrong, but that doesn't work when you tell them that. So, you give them alternative ways of looking at it. And when you have dialogue, dialogue's huge, dialogue is conversation going back and forth. And so often, I hear from these people. Uh, ones that are still on the fence, they're, they're still involved in the movement and they're reaching out to us, they're like, Man. Jeff, it is so cool that we could have this conversation, even though we're on completely different sides and we're not yelling at each other. We're just talking. We might agree on some things. We might disagree on some things, but we're talking. We're not, ha we're not having those conversations in the United States right now. Democrats and Republicans can't even talk. I mean, it's, it's so polarized. So really what it boils down to is that dialogue. And what I mean about storying is telling the stories of victims, bringing together victims and people that have been through pain and suffering, like what just happened in my own story, meeting with Daryl Davis, meeting with Dia Khan, getting to know them, and then hearing their stories of how this ideology affected them. That was telling too, like it didn't snap me out of the movement right then and there, but that stuck with me. It stuck with me to this day. I'm still stuck you know, with those memories, because it was, it was so powerful and so moving. And for different people, it's different things, you know, there's just breaking those stereotypes and being kind to one another as human beings, even if you disagree with somebody being nice. I, I can think of a case of a guy I know, and you know, I obviously can't give names because the stuff's confidential. But there was a guy I know covered head to toe in white power tattoos. And he, he broke down on the side. And this was somebody that was in my old organization and broke down on the side of the road out in the middle of the country. And a black person stopped, helped him, you know, got his car on the road and all this sort of thing. And I have a similar story in my own trajectory. But in this guy's case, this is a guy that typically somebody would not stop. You know, if they saw him, they would be afraid. Um, and some 
a guy stopped, helped him out. And he says, you know, what I'm doing is, isn't right. And he left before I did, but this, you know, that was just, you know, that's just one example and that kind of stuff happens all the time. So if we start treating each other with respect and kindness and listen to one another, we can get a lot accomplished, but really um, what it, what it boils down to as well is with prevent, if we can prevent people from getting into these causes in the first place, that would be ideal. And I think a lot of that has to do with our educational system and getting people to understand the different ethnicities, the different cultures, the different religions, that even if they have some different customs, they're not really any different than the rest of us. Who cares how somebody worships or, or, or that sort of thing? Um, just on that one, just on that note, Jeff, um, do you think it's important that uh, legislators, that is, lawmakers, look more at uh, initiatives such as yeah, increasing yeah, the educational curriculum in areas that involve critical thinking, uh, comparative philosophy, comparative religion. Um, is that more productive than looking at law, legal changes that are punitive? Yeah, I think honestly, like it really starts with that education and getting people to understand a lot of it's based on fear, right? So if we kind of eradicate those fears from a young age and show people that, let them experience it, don't just read about it in a book, but, you know, cover it, cover it in the school systems. And, and uh, obviously, the, you know, this is a multifaceted uh, question because with the lawmakers and things like that, there's so many other things that they can do to help as well because we have people that are in these groups and they're not all going to turn out to be terrorists, but we need to off ramp as many as we can. So they don't feel that way because a lot of them, a lot of these guys that have acted out on and in, in, in criminality and in killing people and things like that, they justify it by seeing this as a war. And from my own experience, I was at war all those years when I was in the movement. Um, and that's the way most of the people look at it. Um, are they breaking the law? Are they all breaking the laws and doing things like that? No, not necessarily some, but, um, it's not the ideology can drive someone to do something like that. Um, it's not, it's not a good thing. So for lawmakers, I would say, go back into the educational system, fix what's there for prevent for future for the future and for the people that are in it we need to have a better off-ramping process where if there's someone that's in need or that is on that precipice where we can reach them where we can get to them off-ramping somebody before they go commit criminal activity or hurt others or end up in the prison systems would be ideal um but we need to also look at reforming people and i think there needs to be programs for people coming out of prison that were in there for um, hate crimes. A lot of times here in the United States, you've got people going into prison and becoming radicalized there and then getting back out into society and, and um, doing things. So there's so many, we could make a whole nother show about all the things that they should. should uh, I think what, I think you, you, you and I need to talk again, but um, at some stage, but certainly you know, the doors open at my end. Um, there are oftentimes conversations about prescribing groups, banning groups, 
Um, sometimes they focus on banning individuals or prescribing individuals and their publications. In your view, as someone who's been in that world, um, is prescription a useful tool? Well, um, I can say in from my own experience, when I was involved with the National Socialist Movement, I was on, um, I was banned from certain countries where I couldn't go into, I couldn't go to Canada. Um, the Home Office in England sent me a letter saying I was banned from England, um, Germany, probably some other countries as well, but those three, you know, countries for sure. And um, I, at the time, I wore that like a badge of honor. I would brag about that. I would say like, um, I was, we were filming for something and I, I burned the letter, I think from the German government on, on camera, you know, as a, as an affront to it. Like that was, people would come up and, and say things like, man, I wish I was doing so much that I would get banned by these different governments. So those things, I don't think, I don't think are very effective and I don't think that they work. It, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about doubling down on, on activity when, when someone's trying to force something on you. Because um, if you're an extremist already, you're not, you're probably not uh, too privy to have anything forced on you. And plus, if you're forcing someone to change, that change isn't meaningful. It's not going to stick. If you got a guy that's like in prison or he's in some kind of trouble and you say, hey, if you, you know, renounce your beliefs, we can get you out early. Bad idea because they're going to just renounce it to some of them will just renounce it to get out. That person's not de-radicalized. You didn't help them one bit. They just said what they needed to say to get out of whatever mess that they got themselves into. So I don't agree with those kind of approaches. But I think if a person's getting out, yes, it's good. But do we want them to just get out and then still have that same way of thinking? Or do we want meaningful, lasting change? And okay. that's what that's what we need to we need to focus on, not not just making people uh, change or, or, you know, bullying them into things like that. So I, I think that some of those bans, I think they're coming from a good place. I think that the people that put those things into place have the best of intentions They They think it's going to help. But those of us that were in that life that understand how that all works, most of the time it doesn't work. And another example, um, like in England, there was a group called National Action and they had gotten banned. They've been banned and shut down for a number of, I'm not sure how many years now, but it's been a number of years. And the government is picking up people still that they were found as members or they had been members of that group and it was banned as considered a terrorist organization and even if they weren't involved in something um terroristic or or anything like that because they were members some of them are finding themselves in trouble and i don't think that's if you were involved in criminality, then you have to pay the price. But if, you know, your group is banned and now they're just searching out uh, members that have been on mailing lists from years ago, I, I think that's setting a bad precedent. And I think what you're going to find with stuff like that is it's going to make people worse. Uh, Jeff, uh, I'm mindful of the time and I appreciate you uh, spending part of your evening with me. Um, is there anything else our parliamentarians should to think about? Yeah, I, I do believe that um, 
you know, one thing that Beyond Barriers does is, you know, we offer trainings. We've done some trainings here in the United States as far as, um, you know, how uh, police departments look at things, how the government looks at things. And um, basically we can train people in our, in our uh, methods and approach and how we, how we um, help people walk and exit out of this, uh, this type of thinking. And it doesn't just apply to the far right. I mean, there's different parallels, uh, believe it or not, between the far right, the far left, religious extremism, um, people that get involved in groups like ISIS, even there's, there's a lot of parallel parallels, excuse me, a lot of parallels that I think the average person from the outside looking in wouldn't realize or see. I didn't realize it until I started doing the work that I'm doing now and, and meeting with different people from all different sides to really truly understand it. And, uh, um, yeah, there's a lot of parallels. So I, I think we can, there's a lot that we can do. And, and I think the government's, uh, need to need to um get on board with it and um hopefully listen to the people that were involved because we we lived it jeff uh thank you so much for your time it's been fascinating talking to you and there's a lot people can no doubt learn from what we've spoken about and just on an hour of almost an hour of conversation if people want to know more about you and beyond barriers where can they go? Uh, beyondbarriersusa.org is our website. Um, my personal website's jeffscoop.com. Uh, you know, uh, check out our websites, check out our podcast, the Beyond Barriers podcast, um, any of the videos that we're working on, um, upcoming events. Uh, we've got a, a email list as well through Beyond Barriers. You can sign up. It's It's free on our site. So just encourage people to check it out jeff thank you so much for your time and and i will reach out again to be develop some things further uh, in another session so thank you for joining me today thank you so much for having me it's been a, it's been an honor and and uh thanks again thank you